I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I have the real pleasure of speaking to Mani Shakabi and to talk to her about a really wonderful book that she's written, A Two-Spirited Journey, the Autobiography of a Lesbian Ojibwe Cree Elder. And I do hope that everyone will get a copy of this inspiring, important, and deeply touching story of Mani's life. And Mani wrote this book with someone called Mary Louisa Plummer. But Mary Louisa said something interesting at the end of her afterward. She said, Mani's experience of living with two spirits, including coming out and embracing social activism in the 1980s, reflects one of many broader cultural and societal changes she has both witnessed and participated in over the course of her life. Mani also experienced other great socioeconomic transitions, including those from traditional to modern labor, from rural to urban living, from epidemic alcoholism to large-scale sobriety initiatives, and from historical trauma to the First Nation healing movement. Her rare first-person perspective provides insights into how racism, homophobia, violence, substance abuse, and poverty have shaped Indigenous women's experiences in Canada. Because it's difficult content, her account may be challenging to read at times. Nonetheless, Mani's story is an inspirational example of courage, resilience, and healing against great odds. We are fortunate that she has shared it with us. And then Mani herself, yourself, Mani, because I know you're on the line with me, wrote at the end of the book something that really struck me, particularly in the context of thinking about grandmothers and elders and the centrality of their love and their voices in our lives. You wrote, Mani, my grandmother, of course, was the greatest example for me. She gave me many tools to help me survive and thrive even when I experienced terrible hardships. My kokum taught me to find comfort in the natural world and the great spirit, to forgive those who harmed me, to cherish the love of a partner and family, and to enjoy humor and laughter with friends even at the worst of time. At this stage of my life, I often feel my grandmother's presence. And as you went on to say, especially when you're with your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, Mani, it is such a privilege, a pleasure, a deep honor to have you on Grandmothers on the News. Welcome. Mm-hmm. I read your book. You wrote it a couple of years ago. I want us to catch up on what's been happening since this book came out. Okay, well, right now, after I wrote a book, I'm starting to gather up all my writings again and all my thoughts because I'm going to write another one. I'm looking for somebody that's going to write for me and will speak exactly like what I just did with my book. If you want somebody, because Mary can't do it anymore. She's too busy. She lives in Washington, D.C., so we're still far away. I mean, what we did... We used to work together with the book from 5 o'clock in the morning to 9.30. 
a.m. We made that commitment and it stayed. Wow. I would get up at five in the morning and talk to a phone. <laughs> but she was at the other end and I would tell her my stories. Now and then she would ask me a question that would make me go wherever I needed to go. Right. So that's how the book became the book. And I wasn't expecting it to go anywhere big. I was only writing my book just to move people into Thunder Bay. Other older women that were around my age and younger and older that was slowly dying off. And I noticed that maybe if I write a book, I'll inspire the new ladies. They can start writing their stories with their families or somebody can do something for them so they can write about the real story of our lives, not the fiction what other people thought the way they thought they saw us but colonizing us into, into their little pattern, into their mm. little box. We're Anishinaabe people. They came along and told us, oh, you can't live like that anymore. You got to live like us. So that was really hard. So this young lady, I didn't ask her. She she offered to help me. So I said, oh, great, because I told her I was looking for somebody to continue my journey after the fact of my writing a book. And I'm going to add a few to my grandmother's legends. So that's what I was going to do with the next book. I know it's going to take time. And I told her what really works for me is I need to do it early in the morning, not in the middle of the day, not in the evening. I'm not in that, that kind of mood in the evening. <laughs> I'm an artist and I do lots of art, different kinds of art. So that's where I'm at with this book that's going to come up. But I didn't expect it yeah. to go where it went. I only was hoping to go Thunder Bay, Geraldton, Beardmore, just around the communities here. But it went way yeah. far. Now they're going to do the audio book because there are some people who are like, okay. and they're visually impaired, some people. And so it would be nice to hit those people because I'm visually impaired. And mm -hmm. it's nice to hear a book that's in tape too. I'm not surprised that the book has gone so far because yeah. there are such deep truths. When I was reading it, I, I kept thinking, how did you feel telling these deep, intimate stories of your life, these deep harms that you experienced, the way that you moved through life and reclaimed parts of your life over so much struggle? How did that leave you each day? Well, you know, when I was living in Umbabaka, which everything happened in Umbabaka when I was young. My grandmother died first, and then my mom died shortly right after. And that was really hard. Prior to that, my grandmother's kids died. The other ones, the, the son, my uncle, my aunts, they all died. My aunt died right in my arms, and her two daughters were with me, but they were crying. They were emotionally falling apart, and I was trying to be the brave one. I felt like, well, she's not my mother, so I don't have to cry. I could hold my tears, but I could hold her and let those other kids cry. I told them to sit beside me and we can hold their mom together. And they didn't want to do that. So she told me to grab her socks and threw it in the fire. I did that. And, and then the foam started to come out from her mouth. And, and then she just died. But she was too heavy for me to lift. So that's what I remember. <laughs> You know, when I was reading your, your story, I felt like you really carried the spirit of your grandmother in so many ways. She seemed to see you and be able to carry a lot of disharmony and difficulty. And all through the book, you're experiencing so much harm, so much violence and abuse. But you have this perseverance. You have this ability to be so calm in the face of crisis. Yeah. 
My grandmother was telling me that one time because I was dragging her out of the house. This is another event that happened. I was dragging her out of the house. There's a lot of trunks all over and there was people knifing each other. And so I pulled her out of there and I put her in that little hub behind a tree where I made it into her safe zone for her. So I drive her there. She was really hard to help my grandmother. I couldn't lift her, but she moved herself with her knees. And then I left her there with tea and then her little bundle. And I think she said, you just don't get yourself killed. She said, nobody's going to find me here. So, And I was running around trying to scoop up a few things for my grandmother. But it was so hard because people were fighting and there was blood all over. And, and I'm young and I'm thinking, oh, my God, my mother's going to die. My stepfather's going to die. But, and then his daughters, she was she was crying. And she said, where did you put grandma? And I told her I hit her. She said, okay, I'm going to go under the bed. So she crawled under the bed somewhere and then I left everybody. <laughs> it was horrible. It was like going to war zone, you know, when you see cowboy shoes now. When I look at them, I said, oh, my God, I live like that. I will. You know, there was, I didn't hear any bombs, but I heard a lot of bad stuff. So my grandmother was really old and she used to try to raise me. She was probably 109 when she died. But in her cross, everybody put 104 because these two other old ladies wanted her to be the same age when they died. (laughs) We want to make her young. We don't want her to make her old. (laughs) And 104 was younger than 109. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what they put on her cross. Well, let's make her young. There are funny old ladies. They would get together once a year, these three old ladies, my grandmother and two other ladies from another place. I don't know where they came from, but they always found my grandmother. And they spent hours talking and laughing about something. I don't know what it was about, but that's what they used to do. I remember my grandmother asking one of my aunts, can you write a letter for me? This is when she was missing those ladies. Can you tell them that I'm only half alive and ask them to come and visit me? Tell her that I would like to see them again because I'm going to go on a journey. She was saying that. And then so she did that, sent off the letter. Two or three days later, these ladies arrived. They were laughing, they were crying, and they were just, you know, in each other's arms. And it was so beautiful to see that. And they would respect her because she was the Mm -hmm. oldest. And they always talked about the old ways. When the white people first came, they always talked about maybe if we didn't do nothing for them, we wouldn't be going through this. That's what they would often say. Why did our parents do what they did? Why did we let them come here? And my grandmother always told them, well, it wasn't natural for us not. We can't just let people die. They were human beings. They had different color bodies, but they were human beings. They have to live too. And look what happened, you know. But my grandmother would always tell them, well, what happened is already happened. We can't change that. We can do the best with our kids now to teach them the love that we have for each other. They need to learn those kind of things. And I think that's what she was doing with me, was to teach me to love people no matter what they were like. Even when I went to school and they taped my hand, they beat up my hand really bad because I was a left-handed and then my grandmother said, well, it's okay. You can still use your left hand. Just don't let them see you do it. When you're at school, don't do it. Try to use this other one. <laughs> you know, she tried to save me that way. <laughs> it's amazing how your grandmother saw you. She saw you and she knew you were too spirited. Mm, yeah, I was four years old. 
one day she said, come here. So I went to see her and she says, you know, you're not like the rest of the other people. And I said, what do you mean? And I look at her. Said, you're very special. You're, there's two of you in that body, she said. So I started looking for the other persons inside my clothes. I couldn't <laughs> find them. <laughs> so I told her they weren't there. And she said, that's okay. You will meet them when you get older, she said. So every year she would tell me that your Nisha Chichak Quenzens means you're a two-spirit girl. And I said, oh. And I was so proud because I didn't know what that meant. And then later as I got older, I knew what that meant. And there was no other two-spirit people in, in that community except for one boy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that had anything to do with the same thing and what I was feeling. He said mm-hmm. that he really loved this boy named Jerry. And I said, oh, who with him? Then I said, you know. You want to hang out with him instead of me? Go ahead, I told him, you know, because I thought that's what he wanted. Mm -hmm. I didn't know he was in love with this young guy. And then he would say to me, don't you feel that way with girls? And I'd say, never found anybody I feel with anything. Then one day this girl came to visit with her grandmother. And I saw this beautiful young lady with long black hair. And I thought, oh, my God, she's, uh, you know, my stomach went crazy. And (laughs) my grandmother told me to take her hand and take her somewhere to go play. I took her hand and then I dropped her hand because my body said, no, you can't touch her. Mm. I didn't know that was part of my emotions. I told her to follow me. So we sat and stared at each other for a long time. Then she says, you want to play dolls? And I said, no, I don't want to play dolls. She says, well, you be the daddy and I'll be the mommy. And I said, no, I don't want to be the dad. I don't want to be a mommy. I told her, can't you be something? And I said, well, I'm Mani. I used to tell her, my name is Mani. She said, you can pretend you're a boy and I can pretend I'm a girl. I don't think that's fair. I said, because I'm not a boy. I told her, I'm a girl. Mm-hmm. Very tough girl, I told her. And she laughed like crazy because I was doing this. And, and then I fell off the tree when I was doing that. And she said, see, <laughs> I was just a kid, nine years old, you know, going like this, hey, you know, showing off. <laughs> oh, that was funny. When you talk about your grandmother and how the, the other women treated her with disrespect because she was older. I wonder now, Mani, if you feel like you have the same kind of respect now that you're older within the community, within your family, how has that played out in terms of coming into yourself as a two-spirited person? Um, I have since my book came out. Before my book came out, I don't think anybody ever saw me. I felt that way. People liked me because I was always laughing. I always made people laugh. Right. That was my journey before mm-hmm. the book even. I wasn't as important. I was 40 years old when finally I started getting respect. People come and ask me questions and come and see me and give me gifts to give them an answer. And I would give them an answer. And people started treating me like I was a person. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's all right. I want to feel that way. I liked it because people mm. treated me kindly. And then Elder Vera Martin, I saw her when she says, you're like one of us. You are one of us. And I look at her, what do you mean? You have to accept your responsibilities. You're an elder. You're a young elder, a two-spirit young elder. I know that's what you are, she said. Didn't your grandmother ever tell you that? And I said, well, she told me I was two-spirit, but I don't know what that means. I said, I just always thought she meant like 
maybe I had a twin and my twin died, I think I told her. Oh, no, that's not what it means, she says. <laughs> you never had a twin. <laughs> she says, you're just you. Nobody died, she said. You were just born that way. There's two of you. You think like a guy sometimes? And I said, well, I don't really think like a guy. I don't want to be a guy. Mm-hmm. I love who I am, I said. Well, that's not what I mean, she said. Do you ever feel like you have to go and talk with Instead of asking someone to come and help you, do you do it yourself? And I said, yes. Do you do fishing all by yourself? Yes. Do you do this all by yourself? Yes. Did you go moose hunting? Yes. You know, I learned all those. I said, that's what your grandmother was teaching you. She said, to know how to survive without anybody else in your life. If you were ever alone, she knew you were going to be traveling this journey. Mm-hmm. And a lot of two-spirit people were always thought there was young girls that was taught to survive on their own if they ever don't have any family. And I said, oh, okay. So that felt a little bit good. Two-spirited people were really special. They were healers and they were... Yeah, yeah. The yeah, fire. They were tra- yeah, they were treated really with respect because some of them had visions of their tribe, what was coming up. The elders taught them to become the dream speakers. They would take them out in the bush to teach them how to look after medicine. Some of them, the boys and the girls, were taught how to look after babies, not to be afraid to change diapers. Mm-hmm. All, all those things happened for all of us. You were also attacked quite a bit for being two-spirited, right? Oh, you, yes. You experienced real violence around it in your life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. In my community and in, in the community I came to when after my grandmother died. There was nobody left in Umbabaka except me. I ran away. I was married to this man. My mom and his mama made an agreement that I was going to marry her son. And I did. I tried running away, but it didn't work. So I just ended up marrying him. He was a nice person before my kids were born. My daughter and then my son were born and he became mean. He wasn't drinking either. He was a sober man that became mean person. So uh, that's when I ran away and left. I left with my kids and I came to Thunder Bay and started to learn how to live. Oh, that was so hard to live in Thunder Bay because I didn't know nothing about city life. I wanted to go hunting. There's no place to go hunting. It's all cars and people. <laughs> right. Nothing. <laughs> can't just go in a bush with your gun and then go hunting. And I found it really heartbreaking when I was reading your story, how the physical abuse from that husband, from Gus, was so extreme after the kids were born. You had to leave all these precious things behind, like you left behind your grandmother's furniture. You had to leave things behind that were part of you. Well, I didn't want to leave my dog, but Mm -hmm. I had to leave my dog. I loved my dog so much. I had to make a decision between my kids and my dog. I told my dog that I'd rather she died and never remember me. I talked to my dog. I told my dog I was going to go away and I would never come back. And the dog kind of went like that, you know, and made noise. I still remember his the face of my dog, the way he acted when I was talking to him. And then I grabbed my kids and then we got on a train. We went to the train station. The dog didn't follow me. I think she went in the bush herself. That's what people say. They never saw my dog after that. And that was really heartbreaking because I asked, is everything I left in the house? 
And people said, nobody went into your house to take anything. They thought you were going to come back. You never, ever came back. So people just left your house alone. Your husband was there all the time. Then he left. He just left everything. He moved in with another person, made some more babies. And this is where he was acting violent towards her, and she shot him. She shot him? <laughs> yeah, she Whoa. shot him and got him in the shoulder. And then he <laughs> behaved himself for a while, and then she left him. The judge told us that he was not allowed to come into our personal life until my kids were 16, and they will have a choice to make a decision to go back and visit with him. They asked him to make payments, but he never did. Not one penny. Well, I supported them. I did it myself, plus a bunch of other kids. I mean, there's so many remarkable things you've done. You dealt with the loss of so many people and a child and substance abuse and, you know, your own descent into hell. And yet, time and time again, you rescued other people. Mm-hmm. It's like you used everything you went through and you worked with young mothers who had were struggling with addiction and and young people who were homeless. Like there were so many pieces of your own struggle and your own trauma that you put in service of helping so many others. So where did that come from in you? I think one of the things I did first when I came here, I started to drink a lot. I drank, I did drugs. Then one day I woke up, uh, I was losing my kids. And I thought, oh my God, I'll never see them again if they take them away. And they were the only two things I had left that was left of me. My grandmother's gone, my mother's gone, my cousins, everybody. And I had nobody left but me. And I was raising these kids and I thought, well, okay, they're small, but I have a chance. And then Children's Aid took them and I said, I can't let them take them. I made a decision to smarten up and quit drinking. I went to my sobriety. I went to meetings. I did everything I was supposed to do and began began to learn to love myself. And I was happy to be with a group of bunch of happy people without alcohol. They danced. They had socials. I was so happy to do these things sober. Mm. And I thought, wow. And I felt so human, so wonderful that. Anytime I heard music, I would just dance. I do that here in my apartment. I don't have nobody to dance with myself. (laughs) I still do that. I just love it. I just love dancing. And one woman fell in love with me so bad, she was going to move me to Toronto, put me in a dance school because I was a good dancer. And she thought I could become something famous with the dance. But I didn't love her the way she loved me. So I was honest with her. I couldn't do that because I can't take your gift because I don't have those kind of feelings for you. It was really hard. I loved her, but not the way she wanted. But you did find real love and companionship. I Uh, did. I felt so happy reading that. I felt like, good. (laughs) (laughs) That's Yeah, it was good for a while. Yeah. Then it disappeared. Mm-hmm. And then I met another person, and I was good for a while. I was happy with her. She was happy with me. But then my demons came out. My demons great. wanted to come out and wanted me to work with them. So that's what I did. And then I left. And then I went for treatment. And then uh, I was waiting for her to take me back. I was too stubborn to say I wanted to come back home to mm-hmm. her. I think because I was too too ashamed of myself because I left her. 
I left her with no cause. Like I didn't leave her because of a woman. I left her because of my personal items. And I was ashamed of that. Yeah. We haven't gone back any that way. She loves me. I know she loves me and I love her, but not the way we wanted to love each other. Right. So she's we family did, now. We, did. We, were, we were proud of what we did. 13 years of good relationship. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. Now we're both single. Right. I'm hoping she will find somebody. Yeah. I told her that I'm a lot older, so I feel like I'm the eldest of this world and uh, I don't think I need another person in my life. But I'll give her some suggestions. She's still young. She can find somebody. <laughs> <laughs> You're still caretaking. <laughs> yeah, I'm still caretaking. <laughs> when you spend your life in the company of women, mm-hmm. you know, and then when you combine that with colonialism and racism, Ugh. And, yeah. and there's so much trauma and there's so much harm and so much to contend with, so much to deal with. Yeah. And when I look at your story, I, oh, money, I feel for that little girl. Mm, Me too. Once in a while I do. Yeah. I say to her once in a while, well, what is your next best thing you're going to do? You know? And nothing happens. I just leave it. Mm -hmm. Right now I'm working. I got a big group. They're all young. And uh, we split it in half. The first group was called Walking the Truth. That's my group. And then we split it in half because the group is getting big. The second group is called Not One More Death. So we do a lot of work with Not One More Death in Thunder Bay. And I like working with these young people. I'm their elder. When they asked me to be their elder, they wanted me to be their elder. And I told them, why? What's wrong with the other elders? Because you're different. You're a two-spirit person. You look at two-spirit people, plus you look at straight people as all the same. You don't split them. And you always say two-spirit people are more exciting because they have adventures they want to do. And the straight people, they just get married and stay together, and that's it. You always find another solution, (laughs) they say it for me. And I said, oh, okay. I like that idea, I told them. (laughs) <laughs> so, but you spend a lot of time with those spirit people because you teach them not to be afraid to walk on this journey to hold their head up high and just let it be and let people think what they want to think so that's what I'm doing I'm here, I get calls sometimes I spend a lot of time on the phone with some people because they need to talk about themselves they just need somebody that's going to listen to them and I'm here for them Sometimes we go out together. Like last month, we did a lot of work. We're outside a lot for that Barbara Kentner, that family, that woman that got killed by a young person. We're going to be busy again in the beginning of December because the verdict's going to come out on December 14th. So I'm planning to do some rallying so the judge doesn't think we forgot all about it. And we want the judge to know we're still protesting for Barbara. And then towards the last four days, we're going to build a little fire pit in honor of her. Even if the verdict says bad thing, it doesn't matter. I just know that if I teach these kids to stand up to what we believe in and not let it go and just continue, even if we don't win, that's okay. 
we've done what we could. And that's all my young people need to know is you do the best you can. We can't make the judge turn the way we want her to be. She has to make that decision and she has to live with that consequences. You know, when, when there was a court hearing, it was all about Barbara. They never hardly said anything about the young guy who threw that trailer hitch at her and said, I got one of them. And to us, that's what we're hoping they'll recognize. They heard that I got one of them. They had an intent to hit somebody and they were happy with that. So I hope that comes out for Barbara and for the family. I hope they get what they feel they can live with. One of the things I was thinking about your stories are so important to share because if you had had someone like you when you were struggling, if you had been able to go to you, the future you, it would have made a difference, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm going back there next summer. I'm going to finish that story. I'm going back to show some people where it happened, where things were, what it was like. We're going to try to make a documentary just to talk about why it's so important to work on self-care. Because see, people right now still struggles a lot. They can't see that. They can't see the the vision is right there for them, that they can do something with it. So I feel, well, if I go back home and show them what I did, how I did it, and use a video, maybe that'll help them spark up something for themselves, for their future. It's so much easier to do something if you see it, maybe, because these ones aren't seeing things the way I want them to see. If they're getting education, they should look at what they're getting into and use those tools that they're learning to better their own lives. That is hard one to give that to people. They feel like they have to wait till they finish school. My grandmother would always say, when you have a dream, you just do it. Don't wait until somebody says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. You have to do it because nobody's going to tell you that's a good one. And you're the one that's going to sleep with it every night. And that's what I'm trying to give my young people. And they somehow miss it. Oh, what do you mean? They go, (laughs) you know what I mean? So then I tell them a story. And then they all of a sudden realized, yeah, like my young friend Ivory, I know what we're going to do with our people. So we go out driving around at nighttime. We buy food. We fix up food. We deliver food to the night people. We give buy them socks, mitts, and hat. We deliver that in this time of the weather. And, right. and we all feel good doing that because we see mm-hmm. these people struggling hobbling somewhere in a dark corner because they don't have no place to sleep. When they start to see that, they go, wow, that was good what we did that day. I'm starting to see them feel satisfied that they're doing something. That moment, now they're realizing, like when we found a dead body in the wintertime, they were so traumatized for a while. And I told them there was a reason why we, our group, had to find them. We went to this law security building across from my building, and we went there to meet everybody. And we're all spending, the woman that lost her son says to me, she says, Oh, Elder, I really like what you're doing. You're going to smudge us? And I said, yeah. Well, I said, "Uh, if you guys wait here, you and your husband can wait here, and your daughter and your family can wait here for us while we go do searching again. 
because every day we were searching and she said to me, do you know if we're going to find him? I look at her and says, yeah, we're going to find him today because it's a beautiful day and it's not really windy. It's not snowing. So we can do more clear day. I told her, I think we're going to find him today. I said, but if we don't find him today, it's not because we didn't look. I wanted her to know that. But before the next day, I had a feeling we were going to find him the next day. So when we went out, my crew and I and the relative of that person, they found him. And he was sitting in a tree like this, and he was frozen. And nobody ever looked there. Everybody was looking everywhere else, and he was not too far from his home. So when we came back to the building, we told the lady, they found him, and she was so happy. They were crying, and they invited us two months later to come to their house. I get a call. They said, Mani, you wanted parents of that man? I said, oh, all of us have to go over there. They want to give us something. And then they all look at each other. I wonder what they're going to give us. And I said, well, whatever they're going to give us, we'll just have to accept it. I said, if it's money, we shouldn't accept money. I said, but if it, if they want to give us money, we'll make the money into something to help the people that are still struggling out there. So when we went over there, they made us nice dinner. It was really beautiful. They gave us big maps. And they gave us that big map now. If any time somebody goes missing, we just look into the map. It was so beautiful. They gave us a book of maps, just books of places where nobody's ever looked before us. We got all that for us. And they gave us the money, but then we put the money back into the shelter for the homeless people. We pretended we were happy with the money, but we offered to somebody else. <laughs> That's what I told my youth. And they said, well, we could have bought ourselves some mitts as well. We could buy mitts. I said, don't worry about it. We'll buy mitts, I said. But the rest of the money goes back to the community. That's how we have to do it. And they all agreed. And that's why they like you, because you think about other people. You never think about just us, she said. I try to teach them to think of other people. And your grandmother did the same thing, kind of seeing people for who they are and expanding the community beyond yourself. You're not just carrying that on, but you're extending it. Sharing my grandmother. Oh, I like that. And it comes through for me in your book really powerfully, the continuity of generations, even while there's so many disruptions, and how you yourself held on to that continuity. And now, in a way, you embody it. You know, now you're it for other people, too. Where were the shifts for you around that role, being that a grandmother. It was being a grandmother. Being a grandmother, like my when I had my first grandchild, I saw what my grandmother might have saw in me. Mm. I saw this child. Oh my God! It's part of me. This granddaughter is part of me. My goodness, what am I going to do with this child? And I would talk to myself for a long time and said, I was with a partner already. Many, you can't interfere in the relationship of your daughter who's just had a baby, that is not going to be your baby. You're just going to be the grandmother and you got to say, hi, hello. I told myself that. You have to be prepared. Right. They know when they ask you to come and babysit because you're the grandmother. What do you want your daughter to learn? But when I saw this kid was older, and I used to say, yeah, it would be nice to have her run around in our house. Me and my partner, we were both grandmothers. We don't have nobody in our house. 
we were building our house, we were building our home together and working really hard. We didn't have no electricity. We didn't have nothing like everybody else had. We were in sort of out in the country with the boonies. And, you know, finally we got our electricity. Finally, we built our outhouses and finally turned that in a real house with a toilet inside. And my granddaughter, when she would come and spend time, I would see her. It would have been nice to, for her running around every morning, early in the morning here. Mm-hmm. But we did that. And we ended up doing that anyways. My daughter became an alcoholic and the kids. So I started raising my grandchildren. And then uh, my partner had a daughter who she started raising her granddaughter. So we ended up raising our grandchildren after all. It's an amazing mirror yeah. parallel to your life, right? Because you were born in the TB sanatorium and then your mother gave you away and your grandmother came and got you. Yeah. I'm glad she did that. Imagine if she didn't. I don't know what I would be today. My grandmother said one day, she said, maybe if I would have left you, you would have been a doctor. She said, I mean, I look at her. Ugh. I don't like needles, I told her. I don't like blood. <laughs> <laughs> she looked at me, she said, oh, I guess you're right then. <laughs> what are you going to do when you go hunting? I think it's time for you to go hunting, she told me when I said that. <laughs> Sure enough, I had to go hunting with my dad. I shouldn't have said nothing, but I did. <laughs> so I had to do that. And my first moose I kill, I had to help with that. Oh, that was scary. Me killing a moose. I can't One shot. It blew me away into heaven. I thought I was in heaven. <laughs> but then you found a baby moose inside that, that mother moose. I cried. I remember crying because I was pulling the four-legged little thing. And my dad says, well, that is for your grandmother. You can get home for her and show her that you did kill a moose. And I looked at it and I went, I can't eat meat. I told him, well, I guess you're going to just have to die, he said. (laughs) I didn't want to eat meat after that. I didn't like to eat meat after that. I would get sick with that, thinking that what I did was wrong, killing that moose with a baby inside. And that was hard. Yeah. I'm going to go back to my home country in next summer. I'm planning a big trip. Oh. So I told my young people, if you, I always tell them, if you want to see a real northern lights, that is the place where you will touch the northern lights like this. You will grab them and touch them, and you will feel those things. Yeah, it happened to me when I was young. They came to our land and there they were, all different colors, green, yellow, kind of reddish, orangish colors, beautiful. And I was just trying to grab them. And I kept chasing them and then I would fall because I couldn't grab a whole bunch I wanted to grab. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so beautiful, though. I love to hear you talk about the things that gave you pleasure in the place that you grew up, Mani, because there was so much hardship you describe in your book. And that hardship also led you to a life of activism. Share with us some of the work that you've done over the years. I work with HIV and AIDS. The day it was announced on TV, Mm -hmm. Lloyd Robinson said there was a new disease, AIDS. And so I immediately... Try to learn as much as I can about the AIDS. 
how it affects people, what it does, because I speak the language and I wanted to save my people. And I figured I could teach them in my language, and which I did. I worked for the AIDS Committee in Thunder Bay, and then I went up north teach about, about AIDS stuff. But a lot of people know me as Omen with the Wooden Penis. That's me up north. Yeah. And I showed them the wooden penis and I put the condom. That's fantastic. And everybody, old people would laugh, roll around on the floor because they would just have a good time with me in my workshops. (laughs) I was a very good presenter. And now I'm an elder at the university. Last week, one of the profs asked me to talk to the students on just like what we're doing. Zooming. I think I had about 25 students from university, different universities, Thunder Bay, Toronto, USA, and a whole bunch of them. And they wanted to find out how I felt about my book now that it's been out and how are people treating me mm-hmm. and how do I feel about it. And I felt, well, I'm still treated with disrespect in some ways. The ones I've read it will up to me and say, hey, really happy to have met you. I didn't know you wrote a book and I'm so proud of you. And, you know, some will come and say that and some will, well, I'm an activist. And they say, oh, there she is. Let's get her mm-hmm. because they don't like me interfering in whatever's going on in our city. For example, so we work with, uh, I work with a lot of students. We do night work. The police don't like us. About a year ago, we went to celebrate our anniversary, light of candles and celebration of our lives. And we were all standing there. We saw a whole bunch of truckers came. They were all parked all over. And we said, oh, I guess this is the day we die because they're going to get us now. When we were finished, and the guy jumps out of his vehicle, big rig. I want to talk to your people, your leader. And so they said, Mini, you are the leader. and Ivory. So the two of us, are we ready to die? I told Ivory. She said, yeah, I guess if that's the way it's going to be, we'll go out. So we went out and the guy says, please don't be scared of us. We're not here to hurt you. We're here to protect you from the police. I heard it on the radio that they were going to go out there and scare you guys. So I called all my truckers, told them to come and help us. Those are the truckers that are traveling through. They're here to protect you guys. It was so (laughs) awesome. (laughs) So wonderful. Oh, that was so nice because they obviously heard it on the police radio, what they're planning to do with us. They heard that we were going to go and celebrate at this place and they said well let's go deal with them we'll just scare them a little bit but then they couldn't scare us because these other truckers were all parked all over the unmarked police car just went by just kept on going through because they couldn't do anything (laughs) that was so awesome you're gonna have to go (laughs) yeah well so the next book is going to be your grandmother's legends your grandmother's stories is that the and the rest of whatever happened here can I ask you one question before I let you know, Mani, you've been really kind with your time. You were saying that some of the youngsters that you work with, that sometimes we get really angry. How do you talk to them about what's happening with Black Lives Matter and Indigenous rights? Are you having a conversation with them about that? Yeah, we do. We had a big meeting here one time. When something goes on with Black Lives Matter, I said we should get involved and be part of them. Not to stay away from them, to be part of them. We joined the, when we know when they're holding something, we usually try to go there to be part of their group. It all come together that way. The only way we can fight these big people that think we're, they know we're watching them now. 
we're watching them, what they're doing. So they can't get away with too much. I think that's how the Thunder Bay is starting to be calmer that way. A little calmer. Not not very much, but less violence every day. For a long time, somebody was dying almost all the time because somebody was getting killed. Yeah. But it's not always just drugs. It's everything else that goes on in the community. We can be part of everything that happens. If it happens to low-income families, then we should be part of them. If Black Lives Matters are doing something and they deserve to have the freedom like we do, then they should be part of us and we should be part of them. Because it's about intersections, about connections. Yeah, we're all connected. How did you find me? You came to me in three different ways in the same week that I was reading about an art exhibit that you were a part of with two other grandmothers. It has your book, some of your art. Oh, wow. Then I read your book and I thought more people should hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for persisting. Yes, this will not be the last time we talk. Okay, I would love that. Talk again soon. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.